Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Hey, hey, good morning, South Valley. How are we? Well, hey, uh, welcome to church. We are so glad that you're here with us. Uh, we're excited that you chose to be here this morning, whether here in person or online. And uh, listen, we, we want you to know that, that regardless how you're attending with us this morning, we want you to know that we believe that God has something for you this morning, uh, that God has a purpose for you and a plan for you. And we are praying for you to encounter God in new and fresh ways. And so, um, so, hey, so most of you at this point, most of you, I think, know that I have a pretty good amount of kids at this point. Um, I've talked about them way too many times, but, but humor me and hear me out on another story, okay? See, a while back, I was, I was you know, we, we, we just came from this, like, era of everybody working from home, right? I don't know if you guys remember that, but, um, but I was working from home, and I'm, I'm at my computer, and my daughter, Felicity, comes in. And, and she's got this little teacup in her hand, and she comes in and she tells me, Daddy, I brought you coffee. And now see, if you know me, then you know that this little girl has just found the way to her father's heart, right? Um, and I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm like, I hope that it's a pour over and that she uh, used dark roasted beans and that she ground the beans herself. But okay, no, that's, that's not the point. So she hands me this, this blue plastic teacup with, with a little plastic ball inside of it. And, uh, and she tells me that there's coffee in it. I tell her how sweet she is and thank you. And I bring it up to my lips and I go, and she goes, no, don't do that. And I'm like, I'm clearly confused at this point, right? And I'm like, okay. So I stop and I look at her and she takes her little teacup and she goes, I'm like, that's what, that's what, Okay. Okay, I'll try it again. Maybe I did something wrong the first, I don't know. So I take it again and I do the same thing. I pull it up and I, and again, she stomps her foot and screams at me. And I'm like, I don't, I don't understand that. <laughs> and then she takes her cup again and she goes, it's too hot. That's the, okay. So I take mine and I grab it and I, and again, she stomps her foot at me and yells at me, no. And I'm like, what do you want from me? Well, I, I, don't, I don't understand this game. What am I supposed to do, right? So here's what she says to me. She says, drink it, daddy. Okay. Okay, so, so moving on. Later in the day, right, later that evening, I'm sitting on the couch, and she comes up to me with the same blue cup and tells me there's coffee in it. And I'm like, am I allowed to drink it this time? And she goes, nope. Okay, so, so as ridiculous as this whole scenario is, how many of you have ever felt like this with God, right? Like, what in the world do you want from me, God? What, what, is, what are you doing? What is the point? What, are, what am I supposed to be doing in all of this, right? See, Marcus just mentioned earlier, and I think we're still celebrating, right, that we had five people come to Jesus last week. Five people in a relationship with Jesus who weren't before. And that's absolutely worth celebrating, and, and particularly to those of you. See, now you've accepted God's will, 
by stepping into a relationship with Him. You have entered into the family of God. Now what? Right? Now what? For those of us who are in that relationship with Jesus already, now what? Right? I mean, how often have you looked through the Bible? Have you seen the Bible talk about the importance of following the will of God? Right? Uh, how, how often have you heard a pastor teach about the will of God? How often have maybe you said to somebody else that, hey, I'm, I'm just trying to follow the will of God, right? Or I'm just trying to find the will of God. But then at the same time, how often are you just utterly confused at what in the world is the will of God, right? What am I supposed to be doing? Well, don't worry, because I've, I've spent plenty of time there too. Uh, but I, but I want to help you out with something super simple this morning. See, if, you, if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to go to chapter 5. Now, if you go too far, that's the last chapter, then you're going to end up in another book of Thessalonians with a 2 in the front. If you hit 2 Thessalonians, you've gone too far. Go back. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to start by just looking at verses 16 through 18. And Paul, the apostle, writes this letter, and he writes this. He says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So there you have it, right? Pretty easy. Let's pack up, go home, call it it. Not really, you have to stay. I'm not done yet. <laughs> but see, I can't tell you how many times that I have been in that position where I'm sitting here thinking to myself, what in the world is the will of God? And it's literally, there, there's a verse. It's right there. It's so clear. And, and I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but I think to myself all the time about any issue that comes up. I'm like, God, why? Why could you have not just put a verse in the Bible that says, Seth, do this thing at this time, right? Like that would make my life so much easier. And here it is. It's right here in 1 Thessalonians. Now, let's go back, and, and I want to get us some of the context around this so we can take a deeper dive into this and see everything that, that the Apostle Paul is trying to pull out of this text for us, all right? So we're going to rewind all the way back, still in 1 Thessalonians 5, but we're going to go back to verse 12. But this time, we're going to read all the way through to verse 24. So it's a, it's a good chunk of verses. Stay with me, all right? So Paul writes, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters... To acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays wrong for wrong, but always strive to, and tuck this away, to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. And then tuck this one away again. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will 
do it. See, when you put this passage that we started with in the middle of its context, there is a clear call to a goodness culture. And and what I mean by this is, is that Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica to tell them that the kind of life that is lived within the will of God is one that is focused on goodness. Right? Now, I want to point out that there's uh, two different verses that we paused on for just a brief moment that talk about good, right? And they're actually two entirely different words in the Greek text. The first is agathos, and, and it, it can be used as either a noun or an adjective, but it, it literally it just refers to the status or quality of something as good, right? So this is a word that you would use if you were talking, oh yeah, he does really good work, right? That's, that's what this word is. So we're being told what to do here, right? There's an action behind this. This is how we're living out our lives among those around us. Our actions should reflect goodness. Do things that others would feel is good. That's the first one, right? The second is kalas. And and this word has more of a meaning related to that which is beautiful or, or lovely or noble, right? It's that kind of good. And so, in this context, we're told to hold on to the prophecies, which these are the the teachings from those who are teaching the Word of God, to hold on to those teachings, those which are good, and to hold on to those. Hold them close. Don't let go of those. So, here's where this comes together. When we look at the passage where we started, there's a bookend on each side of it talking about goodness, right? It's kind of sandwiched between the two. This reminder of goodness coming into it and then again coming out of the backside. And this is very intentional. And this is to show that the Christian who is in the will of God has a different focus than everyone else. The Christian who is in the will of God has a different focus than everyone else. I mean, think about this. How often do you complain at work or at home about work, right? Anyone in here complain about their boss? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) I never complain about mine, but that's because he watches the live streams. Um, (laughs) How about this one? How many of you have friendships that would crumple if you didn't have anything to complain about? And, and listen, I'm, I'm not trying to point fingers, right? Because I've been there. I've been there far more times than I would care to admit. But Christians who are all in, in the will of God, have shifted away from this and are instead focusing on goodness. We see goodness. We experience goodness. There is so much goodness pouring out of God that we can't help but to focus on this instead of all of the garbage happening everywhere else. And and this passage shows us that this is a holistic human experience. And what I mean by this is that it is our mind, our body, and our soul that is focused on goodness. As we learn the Word of God, we focus on the good, the lovely, the beautiful. As, As you get to know the character of God more, you see how good He is. And that should overwhelm us. And as we know that, we then live out with our bodies goodness. We do good in the culture. 
And ultimately, the passage concludes by telling us that we should know that the Holy Spirit is doing a continual work of restoration for good for our souls. So the first challenge is this. It's for those of us who are focused on the negative and who are focused on complaining. You will constantly find yourself outside of the will of God as long as you determine to subject your mind and your bodies to the negative, to all of the things that the enemy is doing around us. These aren't the things that God is involved in. These are the things of the enemy. Don't focus on the enemy. Shift your focus to God. And as we do this, that's when we get back into the the original passage that we started in. And Paul starts this by saying, rejoice always. This idea of rejoicing always, it's a, a key component of Christianity is that it never promises that it will make life easy, right? How many of us have figured that out the hard way, <laughs> right? That's never been a part of it. Now, some people are blessed in some pretty extravagant ways, but we all have our struggles. We all have our hurts. There are plenty of ways that life is just hard. And yet, in the midst of that, we are given this command to rejoice always. When Paul wrote this letter, there was a a modern philosophy of stoicism. And there was this idea that if you saw someone who was happy while they were imprisoned, happy while they were homeless, happy while they were downtrodden in any sort of way, that that person must be a stoic. Because these are the people who, they they hold this belief that ultimately the universe is just doing what it's going to do, it's working its thing out, and we're just along for the ride, so we may as well be happy in the process, right? That's what the Stoics believe. But the Christian has this wildly different perspective that Paul is trying to bring us towards, this perspective that we can rejoice in difficult circumstances because we have hope. It's because of the suffering of Jesus and the resurrection from the grave that we have a hope that is beyond comprehension for the rest of the world. And we hold on to that. There's a pastor here in California who, who I look up to very much. And, uh, and some tragic news just came from his church. I got an email that he had been on leave to take care of his wife uh, who was struggling with some severe mental distress. And just this last week, she took her own life. She leaves behind her husband and her five children who are all under the age of six. It made me absolutely sick to read that email, to feel anything regarding that. It it made me sick to type this into my notes. This is a, a pastor who is now suddenly a single dad with five children. And, and, and as a dad of three children who are all under five, that in itself is a horrifying thought. And I see what happened in his life, and then I read this passage that says to rejoice always. And I can't help but ask how. How can you ask this of anyone in this place, God? How can we rejoice in this? Now, let me be clear 
that as we are called to be followers of Jesus, let me remind you that it was Jesus himself who wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew that moments later he would be walking out of that grave fully alive. It was Jesus himself who wept there. This command to rejoice always does not mean that we are never allowed to mourn. It does not mean that we are never allowed to hurt. The full spectrum of emotions exists because a good God created them. And you are intended to feel every single one of them. There are good ways to experience the emotions and there are bad ways to experience the emotions. But they're all flowing out of a good God. And as Christians, even in the midst of sorrow, we have a remarkable hope. We have a remarkable opportunity for joy that we must not forget. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It was for joy that Jesus went to the cross. See, the uniqueness lies in the fact that though Jesus knew that the cross would be excruciatingly painful and humiliating, that there was joy at the end of it. There was hope. It was the knowledge that this would not be the way that things end. It was that hope of restoration that is currently in the works because Jesus allowed himself to focus on that joy for him to go to the cross and to say the words, it is finished. It's as if that domino has been knocked over and there's nothing the enemy can do to stop the rest of them. His plan is in place and it is moving and he is moving to bring his kingdom and ultimate restoration to this world and to our lives. We are on a trajectory of restoration. And listen, I don't want to pretend that I know this pastor's life. I don't want to pretend that I know what he's going through. But I know that there is an opportunity for him, as difficult as it may be to see, in the middle of this sorrow, to rejoice always. There is an incredible opportunity for him to hope an opportunity to know that his wife is now in the arms of Jesus, more alive than he could ever comprehend. This is the uniqueness of living in the will of God. Because ultimately, we know that just like Pastor Frank spoke last week, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. There's hope. And for those of us who are in Christ, there is hope in every sorrow. Even Paul himself wrote that he rejoices in his sufferings because in some weird way, he feels that he's participating with Jesus in that, the one who ultimately suffered. So church, if you want to know how to live in the will of God, the first piece is to rejoice always. We hurt with those who hurt. We mourn with those who mourn, but we simultaneously rejoice because of the hope that we have. And I just want to say as a side note, 
that I would encourage each of you to pray for North Coast Church and for Pastor Christopher Hilkin as they go through this devastating time of trying to heal and work through this mess that they're in right now. But the next thing in this passage, the next thing that Paul teaches us is to pray continuously, which, hey, now you've got that opportunity here. And I would ask you in this to pray continually. But I want to I say a couple things about this passage. I want to get honest with you, and I want you to be honest with me. Have you ever felt like a bad Christian when you read this verse? You may recognize it by the, by the phrase, uh, pray without ceasing, right? That's how I grew up knowing this, this passage. And see, I at least, I always grew up feeling awful because I forgot to keep praying while I ate my breakfast, right? I'd like pray before my meal, and, I start, and I'm like, oh gosh, I forgot to... And then I'd go to bed at night, right? And I'd be praying before I fall asleep, except then I would fall asleep and I'd wake up in the morning. I'm like, oh my gosh, I fell asleep while I was praying. And then I stopped to be asleep. And, and legitimately, I'm thinking on this passage and I'm like, I don't know how to do this, but God told me to do it. So I guess I have to do it. And I'm not doing a very good job of doing it, right? But let me ease your minds a little bit if you're like me. That is not what Paul is telling us to do. Just like the command to rejoice always, this is a state of mind for the Christian. See, here's the thing. You can be as mentally and emotionally tough as they come. You can try to constantly pursue doing the right thing, but you will never be able to do it on your own. This idea of praying continually is actually the idea of being in constant communion with God. I see, this is, a, this is a really silly analogy, but my, when my wife and I started dating, we lived three and a half hours apart. And so we would call each other every night. And ultimately, you know, we would, we'd get to this place where we're calling each other and we're on the phone, we're out of things to talk about. But do we hang up? No, right? We just stay on the phone. We're not even talking to each other. We're, you know, I can't tell you guys how many times I fell asleep while on the phone with my wife and then find out that she did start talking to me again and I my bad. But, but see, we, we didn't need the other person to be talking, right? We just wanted to know that they were on the other side of the phone. We just wanted to know that they were present. And this is the idea. It's, it's that all of your thoughts, emotions, and mental and spiritual capacities would all be held captive to Christ. And it's not just that he's always on the other end of the line. Because I know a lot of us already recognize that we can reach out to God whenever we want. But what about you? How easy is it for God to reach out to you? How much are you listening? How available are you if God wants to speak into your life? See, listen, if you're wanting to live in the will of God, but you're not even in a place where God can speak to you unless it's on your terms... It's a dangerous place to be. But there's a second way to understand this, this passage and what it means to pray continuously. And, and in fact, it seems that Paul is, is borrowing some verbiage from Luke 18 when he writes this, which, side note, is really important for biblical interpretation. So that's just for you to tuck away and when you read your Bible on your own at home. But Luke chapter 18, and starting in verse 1, we see this story. And it says, then Jesus told his disciples a parable 
to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, he refused. But he finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So we see that Jesus starts this parable with this idea of of praying and not giving up, right? He tells this story about a widow who just keeps bothering the unjust judge, just keeps over and over and over and over again, right? She keeps bothering him, and eventually the unjust judge gives her justice. And Jesus' point is that if even an unjust judge is willing to give justice, then what will a fully just God do if you come to him in the same way? If you just keep pressing, keep praying, keep pleading for justice. See, you'll hear me use this phrase often. We get to participate in the kingdom of God right? Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, and and he went out healing the sick and the lame and reaching those who were unreachable. He went into the areas of darkness where the enemy had brought injustice, and Jesus stepped in to bring justice. And we get to partner with him in that by continually praying for justice and then putting in the work to bring those prayers to fruition. Pastor Ricky, a couple weeks ago, started a sermon series titled, What Would Jesus Pray? And in the example of prayer that Jesus gives to us, we saw that one of the first things he prays is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let me ask you, is there any injustice in heaven? Does any injustice pass by God on his throne? Absolutely not. The will of God is for us to be in continual prayer in this manner, that God's will would be done on earth as in heaven, and that we would be praying against the darkness, constantly pleading with God for justice. Listen, have you ever seen someone begging for money on the side of the road, and maybe you've gotten pretty good at ignoring them at this point, But for some reason, this time, it just kind of turns your gut over. You have a hard time looking away. Have you ever been watching the news and you're largely desensitized to anything they could tell you at this point? But for some reason, this story, this story just captures you and it turns your gut over and you can't look away. Do you know why? It's because your soul that has been created by a good God and that has been redeemed by Jesus is not okay with the current state of this world. It longs for something more, for something better. 
And prayer is the very foundation of how we participate with Jesus to bring the kingdom of God in its fullness to earth. Those moments when your gut turns over are moments when the Holy Spirit is reaching out to you and saying, let's do this. Let's partner up. Let's bring the kingdom of God. And you have a unique role to partner with God in this by praying continually. But we have to remember that prayer is a two-way road. And if God is looking to speak to you, are you in a place where you can even hear him? And then the third thing that Paul looks at in this passage is to give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, this, this is one that I've recently become pretty passionate about. I love this. Uh, and, and you may have noticed by this point that there are some people outside um, Sunday mornings before church, and they're wearing these bright blue shirts, and on the back they say, questions, I'm here to help. Um, that's one of our brand new ministries, and they're called the First Impressions Team. And uh, you're welcome to ask them how I feel about this call to live in the will of God. Because when I train new team members, the most important thing that I feel I can go over is our values as a ministry. And part of our values as a ministry would be that we intentionally celebrate. And there are specific areas that we value celebrating. There's three. Okay, so first is we value the wins, right? I don't know if anybody, any of you have noticed, but uh, we've, we've gone through a couple of tough years globally, nationally, as a church, right? Things have been a little rough. Uh, there has been so much negativity for us to focus on that we just say, we're going to focus on the good, and we're going to celebrate it. Anytime there's a win, we're going to celebrate it. The second thing that we celebrate is the team. And this can actually go hand in hand with the first one right now, because, see, there were just 80 people who stepped up to serve who weren't serving before. And here's the really cool thing. They haven't stopped. We closed the serve initiative. It's over. And y'all are still writing, putting in letters, or, or signing up on the website to keep serving. And, and we're having a hard time just keeping up with all the phone calls. So if you haven't gotten yours yet, we're working on it. We'll get to you. But, but there are people who are still looking to participate in the kingdom of God. And this is, this is a major win and should be celebrated. But we can always be looking at what we could do if we had more people, right? We could be looking at what if, or we can simply celebrate the people who are actively committed to serving in the kingdom of God. And celebrate that there are people who are passionate about doing the work of Jesus. And the third one, this one's my favorite. We celebrate the opportunity. Listen, I know my sin better than any of you. And Jesus knows my sin even better than I do. And yet for some reason, Jesus allows me to participate with him and to partner with him. And he brings that to you too. You are welcome to participate with him. And I am so grateful that Jesus has granted me the opportunity to serve alongside him. And I never want to take that for granted. Whether it's preaching, whether it's the first impressions team, whether it's running the tech in the booth, whether it's in children's, regardless, that is an opportunity that I feel we have to perpetually be grateful for. And so in essence, there is a core value that my team has that we will give thanks in all circumstances. Whether the teams are small, whether the wins are few, 
whether or not we have the opportunities of a larger church with more money than us. We will celebrate what God has given us. We will celebrate this opportunity. But then what about the story like those of the pastor who just lost his wife? How do you give thanks in that circumstance? Because listen, if I'm being totally honest, if I found myself in that position, at least in the moment, I can guarantee you, I'm going to have a really hard time giving thanks. I'm going to have a really hard time being your example as a pastor if I'm caught in that moment. And that's just me being honest. But see, this goes back to the hope that we have as Christians. Romans chapter 8, 28 is, is probably a fairly familiar verse, but it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I want to make it clear that there, there's an assumption here in our passage in 1 Thessalonians. Our text was written to a church, to a body of believers. So it's assumed that we are those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That gives us a unique opportunity to give thanks. For those of us who are on the winning side, who are on Jesus' side, then this is exactly why we can give thanks. As we focus on the good around us and the goodness of God, we can obviously give thanks. But as we face the darkest of times, we can face those knowing the truth of passages such as Romans 8.28. We know that even in the darkness, that God is working things out for our good. And I don't know about you guys, but I have faced some pretty dark moments in my life. And it's passages like Romans 8.28 that are some of the only things that got me through those moments. I can tell you that it's remarkably difficult to be thankful in those moments. But there are so many times that I had seen God work in the past that I knew his track record. I knew that he works for good. And it changed the way I prayed. It changed so that my prayers in the darkness became this. Thank you, God, for what you might do next. Thank you, God, for what you might do next. I don't know what happens next. Maybe things get better. Maybe they don't. But I know you're in control. So thank you for what might happen next. Because we know that God is good. And we know that it is for that reason that we can continue to give thanks. I want to look at one more passage and then we'll close this out. At the very end of our text in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24, Paul concludes this section by saying this. He says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. I need you to understand something really important, church. As we look at the will of God, his will is not to have a piece of you. He wants the whole thing. He wants all of you. And as you give yourself over to God, he will restore you piece by piece. 
Being in the will of God means giving every piece of your humanity over to him. But it also means that this is an ongoing thing. The moment I gave my life to Jesus, I changed. But I am certainly not perfect. But I know that I'm being perfected. I know that the Holy Spirit is still working in me. He's still working in you, changing things, rearranging things, fighting against the darkness. The Holy Spirit is perpetually changing the followers of Jesus, mind, body, and soul, to move us away from the sinful life that we were once defined by, to now being defined by being recreated in the image of Jesus. But, and this is, this is huge, church, but this is a partnership. The Holy Spirit has called us to partner with him. And we partner with him by totally turning our lives to the goodness of God. And this will look like rejoicing always, praying continuously, and giving thanks in all things. This is living in the will of God. May we be a people who fully live in the will of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and, and for your encouragement to us. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would be present in this room this morning, that you would be working in each of us, that we would all each feel you in a unique way, moving us, growing us, changing us. That we know that there are some who are far from you this morning, and we ask that you would draw them closer to you. And for those of, you, of us who are, are just simply looking to get deeper, to get closer to you, Jesus, to be more like you, to be more in your will, may you use this passage to change our hearts, to draw us closer to you, to help us love you more. Jesus, help us to focus on your goodness. Turn our eyes from all of the worthless things that the enemy puts in front of us and focus on your goodness. Change us. Pour your love into us in a way that it would overflow and radically transform our communities. We lay our lives at your feet, Jesus. We are yours, and we love you. It's in your perfect name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. We'll see you next week.